Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To get more programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll only find on Reels Channel. Six-time Emmy Award winner Kelsey Grammer has entertained audiences around the world with his on-screen antics playing Dr. Fraser Crane. But off-screen, his road to fame is paved in heartache when a family member is killed in the Virgin Islands. He shot twice, killed in that moment. But his family tragedy did not end there. In the years that followed, a band of crazed killers claimed the life of a second family member very close to his heart. She was in their sight line. She was in their path when they were on a mission to destroy. Reeling from these shocking murders, Kelsey's professional and personal paths diverge. It is quite ironic that while his career was skyrocketing, his personal life was going the opposite direction. For this dramatic star of stage and screen, life imitates art. His life could be one of the Shakespeare plays. It's that unbelievable and that incredible. He is one of America's best-known performers. A Shakespearean-trained comedic actor famous for his work in television, theater, and film. But this affable star of Cheers and Frasier is also cursed with a dark and checkered past, as he suffers not one, but two terrible homicides in his family. For this talented actor, the years that follow these horrific crimes are filled with guilt, pain, and suffering. It's said that time heals all wounds, but for Kelsey Grammer, justice for the fallen is his one true remedy. Two years before Kelsey was born, his father, Frank Allen Grammer, takes his college sweetheart and newlywed bride, Sally, to a tropical paradise in the U.S. Virgin Islands. In 1954, Sally and Frank Grammer moved to St. Thomas. It was his dream, and she went along with him. Both natives of the U.S. mainland, the two struggle to adjust to everyday life in the Caribbean. Myra Jolave, former reporter, K-H-O-U. He had a lot of iterations of his dream. He was a barista, a bar owner, publisher of a localized magazine. He didn't settle with one particular occupation. Georgie Bragg, reporter, W-A-F-F-T-V. Frank Grammer was a larger-than-life character. He was loud. He definitely made his presence known on St. Thomas the moment he set foot there. He seemed to be a magnet for trouble. He always seemed to disagree, argue. He liked arguing. And he was very opinionated. As Frank's erratic behavior shocks his wife, Sally, the two were in for a far bigger surprise. Jeff Edgers, reporter, Washington Post. About a year later, February 21st, 1955, Kelsey is born. The baby, you would think, might settle things down to uh, you know, a level of quiet domesticity. But Frank's just natural inclination to be bigger than life and to never shy away from a fight creates a kind of chaotic 
life that Kelsey's mother can't cope with. By 1957, things become more complicated as Sally becomes pregnant with her second child, Karen. His mother realized that she was in a toxic relationship and it was a toxic environment for the young Kelsey. She decided the Caribbean was not the paradise for them. While the tension in Grammer's marriage comes to a boil, Frank continues to make enemies around town. When Sally is pregnant with Karen, there's a fight that breaks out because Frank finds out that one of his patrons has a knife. And then Frank became involved in that incident, and that's where Sally said, this is it, this is enough. This isn't the right place for me or children. And they divorced. After this fight and after their marriage falls apart, she ultimately decides to move back to New Jersey and build a new life, and he stays on the island. After divorcing Frank and with a second child on the way, Sally takes Kelsey back to her home state of New Jersey to live just outside Newark. Sally moves back to New Jersey and moves in with her parents, and it's only a few months after they get back, Sally gives birth to Karen, Kelsey's younger sister. Her father, who's a veteran of World War II, Colonel Gordon Cramner, becomes basically Kelsey's father. For the next few years, Colonel Gordon Cranmer instills values into the impressionable young Kelsey. Everything from disciplining him to being the guy who throws the ball with him, he's very much the father. He wanted a father, and Frank couldn't fill that role. And suddenly, here's this colonel, this respectable man who you need to behave properly and sets an example, and Kelsey really takes to that. Kelsey will say, this is my real dad, because he has very little contact with Frank. While his grandfather Gordon serves as his mentor, the catalyst for Kelsey's acting career begins at the age of eight, when his mother takes him to Broadway. Going to see Hello, Dolly, that was like his first exposure to Broadway, and, you know, really develops this love for the arts. By the time Kelsey reaches 12, the family decides to relocate. Colonel Cramner finds this amazing property in Pompano Beach, Florida, and the family decides to move. What he's not telling anyone is that he has cancer and it's very serious. And weeks later, he dies, which is just a crushing and shocking moment for the whole family, and particularly for Kelsey. Suddenly, this father figure for Kelsey is gone, and he's the only man in the household, and he's sort of supposed to assume that role for his younger sister, for his mother. It changes the dynamic. Back in St. Thomas, Frank Grammer was in for far worse. Frank's life, in some ways, it seems like he's rebuilding it or reinventing it. He gets remarried, he has four kids, uh, but in reality, it's sort of like different characters, same story. His inability to avoid conflict is going to be a problem. On April 24th, 1968, Frank Grammer and his wife Elizabeth, their four children, were asleep and they awoke to something outside. It was a blaze. And when Frank went outside, there was indeed a fire in his yard and his car had been caught on fire. 
Now, Frank was unarmed. Of course, he was trying to get this fire out. And at that point in time, he was shot. In cold blood. Even with the trouble that surrounded Frank Grammer, who would expect at age 38, with six children, that he would be cut down in what was the prime of his life? Hours later, local taxi driver Arthur Bevan Niles is arrested for Frank's murder. Niles, an anti-white racist, has been a problem for local police for some time. He had graffitied on the side of his taxi cab the words, kill the white pigs. And they actually had tried to take his taxi off the streets. He is an anti-white bigot who has decided that Frank Grammer shouldn't live on this earth. The killer's motive for targeting Frank Grammer remains unclear. But news of this apparent hate crime quickly reaches his estranged family. At this point in Kelsey Grammer's life, he has learned that life is unpredictable. The grandfather that he treasured has died. The father that he sometimes had a relationship was killed. And he develops this belief that life cannot be trusted. Losing Frank in the way that he lost him unexpectedly also established this dread, this feeling that you never knew what was coming and you never could totally be secure in what you had. To make matters worse, by reason of insanity, Arthur Bevan Niles is later acquitted of Frank Grammer's murder. Kelsey Grammer has faced loss like many of us never see. Here, Kelsey begins to feel a descent into Shakespearean-like grief that will torment him in the years to come. As bad as that was, there was worse to come for him. They were shocked to see just how brutal and gruesome the crime scene was. There was blood everywhere, and this was not something that they saw every day. The road to celebrity is never straight or clear. Many aspiring performers overcome hurdles to find their voice on stage. But for actor Kelsey Grammer, the hard knocks of life come first. At the tender age of 14, Kelsey recovers from the loss of his grandfather, Gordon Cranmer, only to face the murder of his biological father, Frank, less than a year later. With no steady figure to support the family, it's time for young Kelsey to become the man of the house. Trying to keep the family dynamic strong, Kelsey develops an inseparable bond with his sister, Karen. Kelsey becomes the protector and maybe a bit of a semi-father figure to his younger sister, Karen. Once he realizes that their support systems leave or die, he becomes the support system for her. As life goes on for the siblings, by high school, Kelsey begins to channel his negative energies into something far more positive, acting. So as a teenager, Kelsey's in prep school in Florida, and he does the kinds of things he would do as a teenager. He loves football, he surfs. Kelsey was very fortunate in high school. There were teachers who noticed his gift, 
for theater and acting. And this was incredible. This gave him voice. This gave him validation and confidence and the foundation to an incredible career as an actor. While performing in numerous school productions at Pinecrest Prep in Fort Lauderdale, Kelsey gravitates to the works of William Shakespeare. Shakespeare for Kelsey in high school is not just an assignment. For somebody who's dealt with so much loss and tragedy already, I think there's a natural connection to, uh, to these plays. By the time Kelsey finishes high school, he's determined to make his mark in the theater. Acting is what he wants to do, and he pursues it full force. In fact, so successfully, he got a scholarship to Juilliard. Juilliard is the arts Harvard. If you get a scholarship to Juilliard, you have the talent, you have the gifts. While Kelsey is conflicted about leaving his sister Karen behind, he realizes that the longer he stays in Florida, the more his dreams of acting will fade. Even though he felt like he was abandoning his family, it was an opportunity that he simply could not give up. Fort Lauderdale is not the jewel of the theater scene. If he wants to go into that world, he needs to move, and he needs to move to New York. And so that's what he does in 1973. As Kelsey pursues an education in New York, his teenage sister Karen also tries to find her way in the world. Karen wanted her own identity. So leaving the shadows of her big brother, Kelsey, was a big deal for her. Karen finishes high school one year early, and she then goes to college, and she does very well there, but decides she needs a change of scenery. Karen ultimately decides to drop out of college to find a job and a new life in the American West. She wanted to have her own space, and that space for her was Colorado. She liked the landscape, she liked the people, she liked the mountains, the skiing. So that's where she decided to make her life. As Karen is searching for a new beginning, for Kelsey, life in New York is quickly coming to an end. Juilliard is not the dream that he perhaps imagined. Kelsey struggles in class, he butts heads with his instructors, and in the end, he's actually expelled. He hasn't given up on the idea of becoming an actor, but he heads back to Florida, and really it's, it's about regrouping and figuring out where he's going to go next. By February of 1975, Kelsey returns to his family in Florida, while Karen begins her new life in Colorado Springs. They remain in contact. They talk at least weekly, almost daily at times. They remain connected. And she's really building a life there and really finding her way on her own. She quickly lands a job at a Red Lobster restaurant there. And she makes a lot of new friends. Um, she makes decent money. Karen's blossoming friendships open many doors. And soon she finds a roommate named Pamela. Pamela was a private who was stationed just outside of Colorado Springs, a good girl close to Karen's age, and they hit it off quickly, became fast friends, and decided that they would share an apartment. Karen immediately falls in love with her new surroundings. But as summer approaches, the mountain air begins to heat up, and so does the danger. 
In June of 1975, Colorado Springs strangely starts to have an uptick in crime after two random men are found brutally murdered, only days apart. But with no eyewitnesses tied to these crimes, all police can do is wait and see if the killer strikes again. On June 30th, 1975, Karen spent her day like she did many others. After hanging out at the pool, she decided to go inside and visit her roommate for a while. When Pam decides to go to bed, Karen goes to bed for a bit, but she wakes up like 10 after 11. So she walks to the restaurant because it wasn't that far from the apartment to collect her check. The restaurant had a policy that you were not supposed to interrupt the night shift to pick up your paycheck. So it was usual to go after the night shift. Far from the reach of her protective brother, Kelsey. Karen steps out into the night air. She is blissfully unaware of the evil that lurks nearby. What do they do? What they felt they had to do. Eighteen-year-old Karen Grammer relocates to Colorado Springs to start a new life in the Mountain West, far from the protection of her older brother, Kelsey. On the night of June 30, 1975, Karen makes a fateful decision to return to her workplace after hours to pick up her paycheck. Little does she know she is walking directly into a nightmare. For Karen, this was a normal day in her new normal life. So she walks to the restaurant because it wasn't that far from the apartment to collect her check. An Oldsmobile with three men showed up in the parking lot. One man stayed in the car and two men went inside and they tried to rob the place. As they're running out of the Red Lobster, they see Karen Grammer. They realize they have been seen. They realize that Karen Grammer can ID them. And what do they do? What they felt they had to do. When Karen's abducted, she tries to fight these guys. She really tries to avoid being taken by them. But once she saw a gun, she complied. And they weren't done there. With Karen taken as their hostage, her captor's crime spree is just beginning. After attempting to rob her restaurant, they start to look for other targets to hit. So they go to Quick Mart to try to rob the place, but it's closed. So they change direction and head for a 7-Eleven. And remember, Karen is still in tow with these monsters. They go inside 7-Eleven and rob the place and threaten the clerk. They tell the clerk, if you report us to police or you say anything to anybody, we'll come back and find you. While her assailants have executed their plan, well, Karen, this terrifying ride does not end here. The three men take Karen back to their apartment. Her nightmare truly became heinous and unbearable. 
the first man took her to a back bedroom where he brutally raped her for 30 minutes. Once he had his way with her, the second man went back to the bedroom and raped her again. When he was finished, the third had his way with Karen Grammer. In between, they're having conversations about what to do with her because she can recognize all of them. After hours of torture and rape, Karen's captors decide it's time to set her free. She begged them not to kill her, and they made a promise to her that they wouldn't. The men then take her back into that Oldsmobile uh, for a, another ride. This time, they tell her that they're going to let her go. They take her to an alleyway. One of the men quickly takes her out of the car and begins stabbing her, while the other two watch and do absolutely nothing about it. After her tormentors flee, a mortally wounded Karen musters her last bit of strength to find help at a trailer home nearby. She somehow made it up the stairs to the front porch where she tried to ring the doorbell. That was the last thing that Karen Grimmer did before she took her last breath. By three that morning, the homeowner returns to find Karen's broken body lying in a pool of blood. Authorities are called, and within minutes, Colorado Springs police arrive and begin processing the awful scene. When Colorado Springs police arrived on the scene, they were shocked to see just how brutal and gruesome the crime scene was. There was blood everywhere, and this was not something that they saw every day, certainly. If you like what you're hearing, check out the Real Crime TV series on Reels Channel. You'll find chilling true stories of capital offenders brought to justice, like Chris Watts, the Colorado killer dad, the Turpins, whose children grew up in a real-life house of horrors, and a new report on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Then check out Reels' medical mystery series, Autopsy, that reveals what really killed screen and music legends like Patrick Swayze, Audrey Hepburn, Prince, and Tom Petty. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. The detective assigned to this case was Lou Smith, and Detective Lou Smith was a bulldog of an investigator. He would not stop until he found who was responsible. And answers are desperately needed, for the crime scene provides little information as to who the victim is or why she was murdered. She didn't have an ID. She didn't have any discerning marks on her body. This is a huge challenge for investigators. They don't have any identification. They don't have any witnesses. They have nothing to work with. After the victim is sent to the coroner, a small object is found on her body 
and it could be the only way to identify this Jane Doe. One key piece of evidence they found once she was at the coroner's was a key in her pocket. That was really the only thing they found on her body. That key was in the hands it needed to be in because Lou Smith would find where that key fit. Within the first few days, Detective Smith is desperate to identify the body. So he tries the key in the locks of several homes near the crime scene. He wouldn't give up. It was not in his nature. While a key's not enough to identify the victim, her image is broadcast on the local news with hopes that someone may identify her. Ironically, Karen's friends and family have no idea of where she is or that a murder has even taken place. Kelsey had called Karen July 1st and she did not answer. He called again July 4th, no answer. On July 6th, Pamela is wondering where Karen is. She's worried about her roommate. So she calls the Grammars because she knew that Karen was planning to go home or go to Florida for her birthday. So she thought maybe she left. It has been days since they last spoke. And as Karen's sworn protector, Kelsey anxiously awaits her to make contact. Karen was more than his little sister. He had been like a father to her. So when he got the phone call that she was missing, he didn't want to believe it at first. The following morning, her roommate reports her disappearance to Colorado Springs Police. And Detective Smith is quick to respond. Detective Smith arrives at the apartment within an hour. When he got to the apartment, he used that key. He had what he needed. Now he knew that Jane Doe was Pamela's roommate, Karen Grammer. Even with his strong feeling that this was the right person, obviously had to get it confirmed. So Pamela went to the morgue to ID the body. Unfortunately, the dehydration that happened to Karen in the meantime disfigured her quite a bit. She thought that that was her roommate, but she couldn't be 100% sure. And Smith needed 100% sure confirmation. Unable to get a positive identification from Pamela, investigators must be certain that Karen is the victim. So police turn to those closest to her. Pompano Beach Police Department showed up at the Grammar home. This was alarming to say the least for the family because they had just been told the day before that Karen was missing. Kelsey initially thought that he was in trouble. He still had a glimmer of hope that his sister was okay. All of his hope disappeared when he looked down at that file and saw her name written at the top. On this doorstep, the investigation truly begins. But the truth that lies ahead is far more shocking than anyone could have imagined. There were two more murders in Colorado Springs. So this made five murders. This was a hell that nobody on this earth deserves. July 7, 1975. Kelsey Grammer's sister Karen is reported missing for over a week. 
and her Florida family and friends are in a panic. Across the country, Colorado Springs police find the body of a young woman, ravaged and brutally murdered, but her identity remains a mystery. Then police receive a tip from Karen's roommate. That tip leads officials to Kelsey Grammer's doorstep in Pompano Beach. They are searching for help in identifying a Jane Doe. Police ask Kelsey to fly to Colorado Springs with hopes that once and for all, he can give their victim a name. Just imagine this moment in time for this young man. He's already lost his father. He's lost his grandfather who had served as his father. And suddenly he's being told that he may be going to identify his baby sister, his only sibling. He goes with them to Colorado and that nightmare is realized. It is the body of his sister. We do know that he felt responsible for his sister's death. I mean, he was her protector, and the moment that she gets out of his physical presence is when the worst happens. Well, the news is devastating to Kelsey and his family. For detectives, it is the lead they need to spur this investigation. Lou Smith actually drove Kelsey Grammer back to his hotel. And during that time, he made a promise to Kelsey, even shook his hand and made a promise that he would catch whoever killed his sister. As Kelsey takes Karen back to Florida to be laid to rest, Detective Smith begins ramping up the investigation. So at this point, Detective Smith is able to build a trail. Once he knows that this is Karen Grammer, he is able to find the connection but as the investigation picks up, the murders continue, unabated in Colorado Springs. Just after police identified the body of Karen Grammer, there were two more murders in Colorado Springs. One man was stabbed to death, one shot and left for dead. It was more than that place had seen, perhaps ever. The fourth and fifth victims, Winslow Watson and Ricky Lewis, were killed just weeks apart. There were ties between the five, but until they broke just one of them, they couldn't really go anywhere. With the body count on the rise, detectives know they have to act fast in order to stop the carnage once and for all. During the course of the investigation where police are trying to put the puzzle pieces together in this case, they find out about the bungled robbery attempt. And when they go to talk to the employees there, they tell them that two African-American men who had just a militant, violent attitude in the place were the ones who attempted to rob them. Knowing Karen worked at the restaurant her assailants attempted to rob, authorities had their first lead on potential suspects. Detective Lou Smith returns to that crime scene day in and day out for weeks. He never misses a day going to that alleyway where Karen Grammer's body was found. When he goes to that alleyway, one day it hits him. The alleyway is a dead end. And whoever did this murder, whoever had committed this crime, had to have known that area. This apartment complex nearby just screams to him. When he goes to the apartment, he talks to the manager and asks him if there is anybody 
who lives there, who just might fit the description of three men he knew had robbed the restaurant on the same night Karen Grammer was murdered. When pressed for names, the landlord tells Detective Smith about three previous tenants who might fit the description. The landlord knows Freddie Glenn, Michael Corbett, and Larry Dunn as mean guys. They were just sort of military gung-ho, if you will. They had recently moved out of his apartment complex, and he was willing to take Smith into that vacant apartment. And that would be the beginning of the end. As Smith searches the apartment, a breakthrough is made. A textbook is found with the name of the fourth victim, Winslow Watson, inscribed on the cover. Finding that key piece of evidence made all the difference for Smith. He was able to go forward at that point. Armed with the names of the previous tenants, authorities begin to hunt down the suspects one by one, starting with Larry Dunn. Larry Dunn is a young African-American male who was a soldier stationed at Fort Carson. He was known to always be willing to do anything for a dime. He always had money issues, and he was hot-headed. Smith finds Larry Dunn hiding out, and Dunn sings like a bird. Smith offers him a deal. If he talks and turns on his friends, he will get complete immunity. He takes the bait. While in custody of Colorado Springs Police, Larry Dunn shares his cohort's story of murder and rape. And he adds a fourth man, Michael Corbett, who sits at the center of these shocking crimes. Freddie Glenn and Dunn had gotten involved with this Michael Corbett. He pretty much had taken control of their minds under the guise of sort of a black militant mission. He was evil incarnate and had been discharged from the army. He actually ran over a fellow soldier just to settle a grudge. Once he was discharged from the army, he tried to get a group of guys together and follow his sick, wannabe killing, robbing kind of ways. And he found fellow friends who wanted to be like him in these other three men. They were teenagers. They were 18, 19 years old. This trio murdered one guy with a bayonet just to see how it would work, how it would happen. They murdered another guy to rob him of 50 cents. Truly, this trio was on a mission to have a crime spree and some sort of psychopathic challenge in killing people, in destroying human life. Well, ironically, Michael Corbett orchestrated the first two murders. But then with Karen Grammer, Michael Corbett was the only one of the four not present during her rape and murder. He was working at the time. As Dunn admits that he and Eric McLeod were involved in the grim events of June 30, he volunteers that it was Freddie Glenn who ultimately took Karen's life. Freddie Glenn, Eric McLeod, and Larry Dunn were the three who took Karen Grammer that night. 
they are the ones who took her with them to the quick mark and then the 7-Eleven that they ultimately robbed. And then back to their apartment where the three of them each had their way with her. And it was Freddie Glenn who took Karen out of the car and slashed her throat, cut her numerous times so disgustingly that police had a hard time even discussing her wounds. Freddie Glenn bragged about being able to put his finger through the hole in her throat. Dunn's graphic testimony convinces prosecutors to apprehend Eric McLeod, Michael Corbett, and Freddie Glenn for these heinous crimes. With Dunn's help, the three men are rounded up by police and arrested individually over the next five months. Justice may finally bring closure to the victims' families. But for aspiring actor Kelsey Grammer, the past will continue to haunt him as he begins his rise to fame and fortune. I mean, how could anyone really move on ever? His personal life spun completely out of control, just as his career skyrocketed. Justice for Kelsey Grammer's rape and murdered sister Karen seems within reach. Larry Dunn is granted immunity for his testimony against his three fellow assailants. In return, he reveals grim details on a string of murders, including Karen's, that he helped commit, implicating his partners in these awful crimes. Because of Larry Dunn's testimony, police finally had enough information that they could arrest, charge, and hopefully convict Eric McLeod, Michael Corbett, and Freddie Glenn. It takes months, but the three alleged killers and rapists are finally arrested and charged with these violent crimes. Being the only suspect to fully cooperate with investigators, Larry Dunn's detailed testimony is the smoking gun desperately needed by prosecutors. Though he incriminates himself by stating he was involved in the robbery, rape, and kidnapping of Karen Grammer, his immunity deal frees him from prosecution. After a five-day trial, Freddie Glenn and his cohorts are sentenced for the rape and murders committed in the summer of 1975. Eric McLeod was sentenced for the rape charges against Karen, but he only served 10 of the 20 years. Michael Corbett was sentenced for three consecutive life sentences for the murders. It is Freddie Glenn who is solely found guilty of Karen Grammer's hideous murder. And after deliberation, a jury of his peers sentenced him to death. But this death sentence is short-lived, and it comes as a shock to Karen's family. Freddie Glenn's sentence was commuted to life in prison after the state's death penalty was overturned by the Supreme Court. I mean, that was such a blow for the family, for Kelsey Grammer. Imagine your sister's murderer not being put to death and getting life in prison with the possibility of parole. That was devastating for him. Kelsey tries to pick up the pieces of his life as he continues to pursue his dream of acting. 
1983, he's in Sunday in the Park with George, with Mandy Patinkin. And there is where we build the link to Cheers, because Mandy Patinkin knows a casting director in Cheers and suggests that Kelsey connect with that person. After a chance audition, Kelsey lands a small six-episode part on the sitcom Cheers, playing the role of psychiatrist Dr. Fraser Crane. And his success does not end there. I mean, this is not a small show. This is one of the great sitcoms of the 20th century. And suddenly, Dr. Fraser Crane becomes one of the great sitcom characters of the 20th century. Cheers airs its final episode in 1993. But as one door closes, another opens. Kelsey begins filming Frasier, which will become one of the most successful TV spin-offs of all time. Despite his unparalleled success on screen, off screen, Kelsey's past starts to catch up with him. I had decided to break faith with God uh, because I hadn't known anyone that could care for me the way I would, might be able to care for them. It is quite ironic that while his career was skyrocketing, his personal life was going the opposite direction. Kelsey on screen is a huge success as this amazing character. Off screen, he's really struggling. He's doing drugs, he's drinking too much, he's arrested, he's having multiple marriages collapse. He's really a model of dysfunction. And that dysfunction is driven in large part by these demons that you can trace back to his younger sister and his father and all this unresolved pain that he's gone through. As Kelsey continues to be consumed by his pain, he jeopardizes not only his career, but his own life. In 1996, this all comes to a head. He is in a terrible car accident where he flips his car and is arrested for driving under the influence. When he reached the low point, it was actually the cast and the folks connected with Frazier who urged him and pushed him to go to Betty Ford, which was the moment where he finally got sober. After rehab, Kelsey gets a second chance at life. And with his newfound sobriety, he continues to expand his success in Hollywood. Kelsey Grammer has had parts in major blockbusters, X-Men, Transformers. He's won an Emmy for his voicing on The Simpsons. He's an instantly recognizable icon who at any moment could emerge to create another Frasier. You always feel like that. But never forgotten. Fallen sister Karen Grammer still plays a continuing role in Kelsey's life. Even with all the success, Kelsey is really still in a position where he has to look back at that terrible moment in his past. Freddie Glenn is up for parole, and in 2009, Kelsey decides to write a letter to the parole board. And he's very straightforward in his language. I mean, he makes no bones about it. This guy should not be free. Freddie Glenn's parole is rejected in 2009, but by 2014, Kelsey must confront him again. So this is sort of a torturous clock. Every five years, Freddie Glenn's going to be up for parole, and Kelsey's going to have to address that. In 2014, he called into the parole hearing, and his language was different. He said he forgave 
and was not going to attack him, but that he should not be set free, that Freddie Glenn should not be allowed to see the light of day. After Kelsey's emotional testimony at the parole hearing, Freddie Glenn has denied his freedom and is continuing his life sentence at Fremont Correctional in Colorado. Kelsey Grammer's life is truly tragic in its own right. All of those terrible, heinous, horrific things that have happened to him, he somehow found a way to rise above. To be chosen by the people as uh, someone that they are pleased with is probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life because I spent my whole childhood hoping that someone might say to me I was doing okay and uh, it didn't happen very often. And so in a weird way, <laughs> strangely enough, receiving an award from the people, it's a strange way for them to say to me, hey, Kels, not such a bad kid. And uh, the only response I really have to that is, uh, wow, hey, thanks, everybody. You're not so bad yourself. Celebrated actor Kelsey Grammer has finally found happiness in his personal life with his fourth wife, Kate Walsh. He now has seven healthy children and a grandson. But his thoughts are never far from his fallen loved ones, Father Frank and his dear, forever 18-year-old sister, Karen. In the foreword of his autobiography, Kelsey describes his sister, Karen, telling her friend, I'm not so sure about myself, she says, but I do know this, Kelsey is going to do it all. To which Kelsey replies, Karen, if I haven't done it all, I promise I will still keep trying. I'm Harold Rivera. Next week on Murder in the Family. How did Dylan McDermott lead the fight to find his mother's killer? He ultimately had the courage to come forward and be his mother's voice. Murder in the Family. Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of Murder in the Family, including chilling reenactments and crime scene photos you'll only get on Reels Channel.